0: Many adults may not be aware that simply being over 50 puts them at increased risk for shingles. Help prevent shingles in patients over 50 with Shingrix. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, HZ, or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca/shingrix/pm for contraindications, warnings and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca.
1: This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill makes billing on the go easy and pain free. Add a patient in as little as three seconds and submit a claim with just a few taps. Start your 45 day free trial today. Visit slash CMAJ. That's D R B I L slash CMAJ to get started.
0: Welcome to another episode of the CMAJ podcast. I'm Blair Bigum. I'm Mojola O'Malley. So, Jola, today we're talking about a really controversial and interesting topic. We've got an analysis in CMAJ that is suggesting that people who live a long, long way from a dialysis centre should be prioritised for kidney transplant. What did you think about when you heard that one come up in the story meeting?
1: So, I guess for me, I was really excited about it. I don't view it as controversial. I view it as radical justice in terms of bringing equity into the practice of medicine. I was shocked
0: to learn about what's going on just presently, let alone what Aaron's sort of uh, provocatively suggesting that we do. Just the idea that people can't get dialysis when they're in end-stage renal disease because of their geography or have to make these dramatic changes in their life. I mean, it was just shocking.
1: Yeah. And uh, later on in the podcast, we have a guest who's had to go through managing dialysis and ultimately transplant who comes from a rural and uh, remote area in northern Manitoba.
0: So we're getting into this conversation today because of an analysis published in CMAJ recently titled Patients with Kidney Failure Who Cannot Access Dialysis in Rural and Remote Areas in Canada Should Be Prioritized for Kidney Transplantation by Dr. Aaron Trachtenberg and his colleague Dr. Aviva Goldberg. Aaron, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: What inspired this analysis?
2: One of my first encounters as a medical student in third year medical school, when you start to go in like a full history and physical, was with a woman from northern Manitoba with kidney failure who was hospitalized for something else. And she was making the decision to go back home and not do dialysis and told me that she knew that meant she would die sooner than she maybe had to, but she wanted to be at home. And so that's just stuck with me throughout all my training. And as my career has developed and I'm starting to uh, do some extra training and some extra work with the kidney transplant group here, I started to think about what tools are sort of in front of me at the current time that I could help chip away at this bigger problem, I think, of people having to move from their home communities to get the best care possible.
0: In your article, you talk about some data out of Alberta that showed that people would be willing to give up six years of their life in order to get dialysis where they live and not have to move. I got to ask, how often do people decline IHD because they are just not willing to leave their communities to move closer to a centre?
2: I know that in Manitoba, we probably have 40 or 50 people a year, maybe a bit more, that have to move into the city while hopefully waiting for a spot at a rural or remote dialysis center. I know that when you do have a chance to talk to these patients for a prolonged period of time and they're comfortable opening up, that is very hard. It's very hard on them, and it's also very hard to know that They're waiting for a spot that only opens up for two reasons. One is someone gets a transplant, but that's unfortunately pretty rare. And the other is someone dies. So you're sitting there trying to go back home knowing that you're waiting for someone else to die, and that takes a toll on people as well.
0: Talk to me a little bit about how the prioritization is currently determined for getting that transplant.
2: Is it just time on the list? So the current prioritization for transplants in Canada is determined on a province-by-province sort of level, but they all follow a similar schema, which is trying to balance uh, equity and utility. So typically, the heaviest weighting factor is how long you've been on dialysis. But there are other things such as your HLA or your immunological match that will factor in there. And then each province will have certain other overriding factors. So most places have a pediatric priority. Most places have some type of rule for medical urgency. So if somebody has, for example, lost all their dialysis access and they'll die imminently without a transplant, they can get priority. And then sometimes there's other types of a priority based on, say you were a living donor previously and now you need a transplant, that might get you some priority as well. So it
0: sounds like but in most places balancing... Equality with equity for some populations, like for children. Tell me about the impact on your proposed approach on urban residents, for example, people who live in Vancouver or Montreal.
2: So I think that's a good question. That's obviously on our minds when we wrote it. And it was one of the questions that we got asked right away in the reviewing process. I can't say that it would have no impact on people that live urbanly. I think that impact would be small. I think that impact will depend on how you define the prioritization. Are you talking about people getting prioritized based on living a certain distance from any possible dialysis center? Uh, how are you giving that priority? Is it a dichotomous? You get bumped up or is it multiplying their wait time by something? I've looked at some very preliminary numbers in Manitoba and I, I think that you know we're probably talking about a handful of patients per year. So I don't think that it would make a huge impact or disadvantage on the urban dwelling patients, but now I want to choose my words sort of carefully here, but the difference between equality and equity is acknowledging that we don't all start from the same place and giving advantages to those that are disadvantaged and When you have a finite, scarce resource, if you want to give an advantage to somebody, you will disadvantage other people. But what I'm saying is that the urban dwelling patients already have a lot of advantage because they can much more easily access dialysis while waiting. And they're not forced out of their homes and they're not experiencing that same threat to their overall health that comes with having to leave their home community. And so... I wish that we had an unlimited number of transplants that we could offer to everybody. But when we don't, you have to figure out how to use them in the fairest, sort of most equitable way uh, that maximizes their use. And And I think that in the commentary, I laid out the ethical foundation to defend this.
0: Are there other disadvantages to living in a rural area that make you more likely to end up with end-stage renal disease or, or in a situation where you become dependent on dialysis?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of good literature about that, a lot of good stuff coming out of Manitoba done by a lot of my colleagues here. There's definitely a link between being Indigenous and risk factors for end-stage kidney disease. How much of that is related to geography versus other systemic disparities in the social determinants of health depends on exactly what measure you're looking at. There's studies out there showing that Indigenous patients are have difficulty accessing transplant regardless of how close they live to an urban centre. And then there's other studies showing that geography impacts more of the upstream factors such as early nephrology care, preventative care, management of diabetes um, that leads to needing a transplant. So, I mean, I think it's no surprise. I think the CMAJ publishes a lot of articles and it's like it's on their mandate that there's disparities in health for patients that live in rural and remote regions. A lot of those patients are Indigenous and that kidney disease is one of the major conditions that where you can see these patterns. That's why I make the argument in the article that like this transplant prioritization is what I think we could do right now, but it's like a tiny fraction of what's really needed is like a multi-pronged approach to prevention, screening, treatment, and increasing access to dialysis because not everybody's a transplant candidate.
1: How come when we talk about prioritization for a transplant, why isn't this already put into it? We, If we already know that there already is a disadvantage to people in rural remote areas in terms of accessing proper kidney health, so they do not need a, di- a dialysis, and then... They, they, there's more disadvantage and more of the system is set up for them not to necessarily thrive within it. Why is that not already in
2: calculated into the decision making of who gets a transplant? So i'm I'm just getting into the transplant world. I think that there has been a lot of excellent developments in the last decades on trying to reduce disparities in access to transplant. I think that the the change from wait time beginning at the time of being listed to the time of actually starting dialysis helped address disparities in early access to care. I can't say why it wasn't already in the allocation schema. I know that locally, once I brought this topic up, I, I found out that it has been considered in the past. I think that this is just a step in an ongoing and evolving conversation and understanding of what equity really is. And that is not equality it, it, that, and, and I think that previous <clears throat> allocation schemas that use the word equity, uh, were really thinking equality. And, and you, there's, there are studies in Canada showing that once you were listed for a transplant, if you lived remotely or if you were indigenous, you probably had equal access. But what I'm saying is that's not really equity because if you think about their overall access to all treatments of kidney failure that allow them to live a meaningful life, even equal access to a transplant in the face of unequal access to everything else is not equity. If you want equity, you have to fix one of those and and. The one that I happen to work in is transplant. And so I think that I can work on that in that corner. And I hope that everybody in their own little corner works on ways to fix it from their perspective.
0: Aaron, this is so fascinating. I'm learning so much about this and it's such a tricky topic.
1: But let's be honest, but is this really, is it complicated? Well, what, what do you mean, Joel? Like It
0: seems like the politics of this, the urban-rural divide, Like how, how do we actually fix this
1: inequity? Aaron, what are some of your thoughts about fixing it?
2: Okay, so do I? Th- I think it's complicated, and it's not complicated. I-, I think that this discrete problem of trying to help uh, the rural, remote divide and get better access to transplant—that's semi-complicated. It just means we have to figure out what the definition of rural and remote is, how we allocate it. That the bigger issue of disparities in access to all care. But in my area, dialysis, nephrology care, transplant care, it's as complicated as addressing any type of systemic racism is. I struggled with that concept for a long time until I heard a definition from Murray Sinclair, which was, and I'll butcher it, but paraphrasing it is that Systemic racism is when you have a system built on historically or philosophically racist structures that lead to different outcomes depending on race. And it doesn't require any single individual to be racist. And in fact, it can force non-racist individuals to behave in a racist way. And I think that's present in the delivery of care to rural and remote communities. I don't think it's, I just think that's true. I I don't know how else to put it. I think that we are talking about a group of patients that experience these disparities based on where they live, but the reason they live there is rooted in racism and historical racism. And I think that Part of the reason this whole topic really bothers me is because I just sort of see it as another example of taking people out of their homes and out of their home communities. And it just bothers me. And it bothers a lot of people. I'm not like, I'm not unique in being bothered by this. I just would like to chip away at it. And I think there's a lot of people who would. And I think that the conversation is evolving and this comes back to why hasn't it happened yet? Why haven't a lot of things happened yet? I think the better question is, why not now? And let's just start chipping away at it.
0: Leaving your home, leaving your community can be such a distressing and it like just cause total upheaval for so many people. We see... This I'm just thinking about my own practice, people who um, stay at home, even if they live in an urban area, uh, despite maybe it not being the safest place for them to live, that the human will to stay in your community, to stay in home is so strong. And you're right by forcing people to choose to leave in order to stay alive, because we can't offer them dialysis or transplant where they live is really one of the the greatest disparities that in Canada particularly we really struggle with is getting everybody the care that they need
2: yeah no i I agree, and um I think that the more we talk about it, the more everybody starts to also just agree that it is kind of common sense you know i I'm doing some focus groups with patients on another topic uh, about um, allocating kidneys. And several patients independently have uh, brought up this idea of, well, maybe it should depend on where you live. And I think what was really inspiring about that interaction was it, it came up organically just by having a focus group with a patient that lived in Winnipeg and a patient that was from a remote community and had to move. And they just got to know each other. And they heard about it, and then the person from Winnipeg said, obviously that person should get a transplant sooner than me because I live five minutes away from my dialysis center. So I think it kind of isn't that complicated, and it kind of is common sense once you're exposed to it and once you think about it.
1: That's awesome, Aaron. I actually had a tear in my eye. That was so moving. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Aaron, this is truly
0: inspiring and humbling. Thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Erin Trachtenberg is with the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Manitoba.
1: Vanessa Tate's family lives in Panapiwin, Cree Nation in northern uh, Manitoba, which is about 12 hours from Winnipeg. When her father's kidney health declined, he needed to travel to Winnipeg for dialysis and therapy. To put that in perspective, that's like a patient in Ottawa needing to drive to Moncton, New Brunswick for treatment. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for the invite and the opportunity to be here.
1: So can you just tell us a little bit about when did your father's kidney health start to decline?
3: So on October 2017, um, my dad actually had his first biopsy um, of his kidney. And at that point, his kidney function was already at uh, 15%. So you can also see even um, screening for kidney disease is a little later on for First Nations uh, patients because we don't have the uh, proper facilities in our own First Nations communities. So he actually came out to Winnipeg for a kidney school at, at the end of November. So upon his, his return home, he started getting really sick. So then on November 29th, 2017, he actually went to the Thompson General Hospital, the emergency. And upon that time, he was getting very sick. He went into an induced coma. And then so on December 3rd, 2017, a couple like a, probably about uh, five days later, he was life flighted to Winnipeg. Um, so emergency dialysis was administered at that time. And um, he had to, I'd say within 24 to 48 hours, I can't like quite remember the the, the timeline, but there was about 19 litres of fluid that was removed from his body.
1: And once he started, um, once he was able to leave the hospital, where did he stay to continue the dialysis?
3: So knowing that he was having to go into hemodialysis after he would be discharged from the hospital, we knew that he had to stay in Winnipeg. There was no way to go back home or to even go to Thompson, Manitoba, which is the nearest location of to my community to get dialysis treatment. So at that time we were just looking for an apartment and we kind of said, okay, well where is he potentially gonna have dialysis? And um, so we wanted to find an apartment near there. So we actually had to find an apartment quickly. I remember that, you know, I was able to find one and when my family came to be with us, uh, we had no furniture. It was just an empty apartment so we basically had the apartment and he had to stay in winnipeg manitoba so he was in the winnipeg hospital for 13 days and uh, the hemodialysis journey started then
1: and how long did he stay in uh, winnipeg for the di- like for the dialysis
3: initially so a year after that we started to discuss have an appointment about peritoneal dialysis so that he could return home okay. so we started that process in that journey the following month there was a surgery to insert the peritoneal dialysis catheter in his stomach. And then my mom was trained uh, to administer the dialysis. So in May 2018 is when my dad was able to return home with the peritoneal dialysis. However, he did have difficulties with peritoneal dialysis in my community.
1: How, what was it like, to just to step back a little bit, what was it like for him initially to A1 be rushed from, you know, his home? To uh Winnipeg and then to be in Winnipeg for a few months, like what was that what impact did that have on him being away from your community and away from you know the extended family
3: I recall, and throughout the whole entire journey, my dad was very lonely and and getting mm-hmm. used to coming from a northern Manitoba community where you're surrounded by nature and surrounded by land, and it's not as noisy to have to come to you know an urban setting where It's quite noisy, quite chaotic. You can't just like go out and, you know, be able to go fish or be able to go hunt or be able to go for a boat ride. And also not being surrounded by family. Like all his grandkids were up north. My brothers were up north. All his sisters, all family was up Mm -hmm. north other than myself, who was here um, in the city as his daughter. So my dad got really lonely and it was really hard.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine. So you said that he went back uh, to your community And then he was on uh, peritoneal dialysis. What other options
3: are there uh, besides peritoneal dialysis? They discussed home hemodialysis. However, in my community, our house has a tank water. We don't have Mm -hmm. a main line like we do here in Winnipeg. Like I know home hemo is probably something that is sufficient here, here in the city of Winnipeg because there's a main line. You don't have to worry about running out of water. Another thing that the breaker system in our house is not quite, you know, large enough to hold the capacity of such a big machine. So even that you probably would have, he said, you probably will have to come and, you know, install something that's a lot larger. Another thing is, is that our community is prone to the hydro running out. I meant hydro shutting, hydro outage. So, and it takes a while for Manitoba Hydro to come to our community to restart the hydro. So if my dad was on home hemo and all of a sudden the power went off and... He was on the the machine. What would that mean, right? So it's very unrealistic to have such a machine unless you do all those upgrades that I did mention.
1: And that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of undertaking.
3: Yes, and also too one of the thing one of the biggest things is because with the peritoneal dialysis cycler. Again, innovation technology, they did have a USB you could plug in and then you plug it into uh, the system and the doctors here in Winnipeg would get informed that Mm -hmm. either my dad's blood pressure was low or, you know, uh, his sugar was high or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently, that that technology does that. However, it didn't work in my community. The reason being is because we don't have connectivity. Our connectivity is not the greatest in our communities.
1: And so at what point did you decide... To donate. And why did you decide to be a living donor?
3: So my dad went home on May 2018 uh, for his peritoneal dialysis. He actually returned to Winnipeg October 2018. uh, Because of uh, complications with peritoneal dialysis, he was having really bad uh, chest pain. Hmm. So he did return back to Winnipeg. But upon his return to Winnipeg, he actually suffered a massive heart attack. Um, Unfortunately, during his uh, bypass surgery, he also suffered a stroke. So there was a lot of things that were happening. And then after, because like my dad went home for peritoneal dialysis, I actually decided that I was going to let go of the apartment. So when he returned, unfortunately, he had to stay at the Marlboro Hotel. Because, you know, northern patients, when they come to Winnipeg for uh, medical treatment, they either have to stay at one of the receiving homes and then also a lot of them stay in hotel rooms. So my dad at the time was staying at the Marlboro Hotel. He did stay there till November 2019. So he stayed there for over a year. A year? um, Yeah. So it's four walls, one bed, you know, you eat at the restaurant. And so he was going through hemodialysis on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays. So, what that tells you is that you know, again, even the dietitian orders was, you know you have to eat this, and this is what you have to eat when you're on um, hemodialysis. However, the restaurant does not serve they serve what is on their menu, mm-hmm. right? So you have to fall you have to eat whatever is on the menu. So, I had sat and talked with my family, and you know, I really wanted my dad to go back home because I seen you know like the depression in him, I seen that he was missing home. And I just, you know, I wanted him to go back home because, you know, that's where he's happy. There's just something healing about being home and eating our traditional foods, eating our moose, eating our fish and just being there with, you know, my aunties, my cousins, my uncles and just being surrounded by the love of your family. That's more healing than anything. Right. So it's just like some people just can't grasp that. That's where family is. That's where his grandkids were. Like my dad really loved his grandkids and he wanted to go back home. At first he said, no, you know, my girl, I don't want you to give me your kidney. So it was me who persisted and talked with him. And so it took a little bit of a convincing and he finally said, OK. And so
1: he has. So you are a donor and he receives the transplant And then how long was he in Winnipeg for after that before he gets to go back home?
3: It was definitely a long journey. When the consult happened in January 2018 to when the actual surgery happened, it was about two years and six months.
1: Yeah. He passed away shortly after that. Does that affect your decision at all? Like when you look back about it, about being a donor?
3: No. So my dad did... Like my dad did pass and took his final breath the morning of April 8th, 2021. So he did have the the kidney for nine months. My, again, my initial decision to donate uh, my kidney to my father was so that he could go home. That was the goal his wish um, to go home was fulfilled and he was surrounded by family when he took his final breath. And he wasn't in a hospital setting because the hospital setting is not, you know, the greatest place to, you know, take your final breath as well, too.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for sharing your story.
3: Yes, you're welcome.
1: Vanessa Tate lives in Winnipeg. Her home community is Opiepona Pi Win Cree Nation, 12 hours north of the provincial capital.
0: So Joel, let's talk about the key takeaways here. I think my key takeaway is just that this idea that you have to move just to access medical technology that can keep you alive is something that a lot of people aren't aren't willing to do. People would rather die than leave their communities and travel a thousand kilometers away. And so even though we offer hemodialysis in big centers to people who live remotely, we're not really meeting our obligations of the Canada Health Act. I mean, it's not really a palatable solution for people.
1: No, and even if, like, I mean, we are giving them the option of leaving their support system, their safety, what means the most to them, uh, versus, you know, being on dialysis. So I can see how for some people, you know, they would rather stay at home. They'd rather be with their family uh, rather than uh, undertake dialysis hours upon hours away from home.
0: Yeah, it sounds like peritoneal dialysis isn't an option for everybody. Home hemodialysis isn't an option for everybody.
1: And I think that when we talk about, kind of similar to when we were our podcast on social prescribing, is that there's a lot of structural aspects and determinants of health that really impact your health. You know, talking to Vanessa about not having broadband uh, internet for uh, to to connect the USB, not having a main line for water, um, not having um, the hydro and that being an issue. Those are all things that are just structural that we in the city and also us in medicine, we don't really think about in terms of how that actually impacts our patients' health, but is so crucial and is such an important part of the determinants of health. And so that was really eye-opening to me of things that I are, are blind spots for me. It makes me wonder what the future is going to hold for
0: dialysis and for transplant. When I look at the machines that keep people alive, you know, a ventilator is pretty small. A, you know, transport ventilators on the helicopter I used to work on were very small. You could easily carry them. Even an ECMO machine itself is not that big. It's about the size of a shoebox. And then you have the dialysis machine, which is like this enormous, it looks like a, you know, it's the size of a grizzly bear on his hinds that you have to wheel into the room it takes a dedicated nurse. It takes specialized water. It it really is ripe for sort of amazing technological revolution to make it smaller and easier and more accessible. I wonder if that'll ever come.
1: Uh, I mean, I think that they're doing wonderful things in terms of technology. Um, but I I do think though, even if we have those technologies, if we don't deal with kind of the structural issues that we have in our society those will not matter to the people that it matters to the most. And so I can see where Aaron's um, commentary comes from in the sense of, well, this is an easy way that we can balance the sheets. We can balance it that we prioritize people where getting to dialysis is not feasible and is harmful. Um, And, you know, to the point where a daughter gives her father a kidney so he can come home. To me, that is very powerful uh, and that was just a really moving absolutely aspect. i guess i'm off, often moved in this uh, podcast just it was just really powerful that you would give your father a kidney even if it's for 2 weeks just so he could be home and to to and anyone who has to make that sacrifice you have to sit back and think are we actually as you said doing what we're supposed to do according to the Canada Health Act absolutely
0: That's it for this week's episode on the CMAJ podcast. Please take a moment to share it, like it, comment on it, and make sure that you tell your friends about it. That's the best way for us to get the word out. Until next time, I'm Blair Bigham.
1: And I'm Mujala Amali. Thanks for listening. Be well.